you can't really teach a machine ethics, right? The machines in some ways are learning things that we don't want them to learn, right? Learning bias against women and people of color. What we're trying to do at this point is you know, deal with these ethical flaws um, that, uh, that are baked into the systems. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. We're about to speak with Cade Metz. He's a longtime AI reporter. He used to write for Wired Magazine. More recently, the last couple of years, he's been with the New York Times. And he just finished a book titled Genius Makers. He chronicles the champions of AI back from the 50s and 60s all the way to present day. And so he follows the, the core people that have shaped and created and had that vision for what AI could be and still might be in the future. So we sit down, we talk about that story, but also ethics and morals and what does AI mean for the rise of China? What does it mean for the US and where it stands as an empire? And how does it all fit in between what does government want? What does Silicon Valley want? AI really could be that revolutionary technology that might redefine how our world works. So let's sit down and enjoy. Welcome, Kate. It's good to have you here. We're looking forward to talking about AI with you today. Glad to do it. Always glad to talk about AI. <laughs> yeah, so you just had a book come out. So that, that's been your jam for a long time, AI, talk, uh, not just talking, but writing about this. So maybe give us a little bit of your background of what got you interested in this whole um, category to begin with. Well, before uh, joining the New York Times, where I am now, I was with Wired Magazine. And soon after I joined Wired, uh, about 2012, there's this single idea, technological idea, that really started to take off um, right around the time I got to Wired. It's called a neural network, and we can go into what that is and what it means. But that idea took off and started to spread throughout uh, the industry, uh, mainly through the very big internet companies, the Googles and the mm. Facebooks and the Microsofts and so on. And I started to cover that uh, heavily. We At Wired, we tended to look for where the change was and really cover that well, the technological change. And that really became the seed of my book. This, this idea, a neural network, it's been around since the 50s. It's a long it time. It never quite worked. It's a long time. It never quite worked the way that, that the people who who dreamt it up thought it would work or believed it would work. And then suddenly it started to work. And that is the kernel for a good story. When you have a tiny group of people who believe in something, even though the rest of the world does not, even though the people sitting right next to them do not, and then it starts to work. And that's, that's what I saw witness happen in real time. Hmm. And basically, with this book, I show what has happened over the past 10 years because of this one idea. But it also flashes back to the 50s and gives the context and follows these, frankly, fascinating people, fascinating, quirky, um, unusual people uh, and, and their stories and how their stories kind of weave together to form uh, this narrative. It's uh, it's a book that reads like a novel because it deserves to, right? It's about yeah. these interesting people and the ideas they've brought. Yeah, it does. And I'd like to say I, I've read the book, and so I want to I want to put that out there that kind of doubling down on what you're saying is that it's in the context of AI, 
and this development of these ideas, but it's about the people. And that's not unlike what we're doing here as well, as we can talk about economics all we want till we're blue in the face, but if we don't recognize that human element and the stories that we bring to these uh, topics and categories and, and uh, um, expertise that we work within. And so maybe let, let's bring that a little bit to talk about those big systems for a bit and we can dive back in of if, I'll phrase it this way, technologies are either evolutionary or revolutionary. And so far, AI, the, 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 the things we're getting out of it seem more evolutionary, but ultimately it appears like we're working towards a revolutionary technology. And if we look in the past, whoever acquires that revolutionary technology first certainly seems to have somewhat of a global dominance or an, an empire in front of them for a period of time. So is this, are we watching out the, the outplay of the race for global dominance currently, perhaps say between the U.S. and China? It's certainly possible. And you talk about evolution versus revolution. There is a big change that is happening here. And the change is important because it can really accelerate um, what is happening. And I think it's worth explaining this one idea I've, I've talked about to get into the dynamics of what's happening and how that affects us geopolitically mm -hmm. and about this race, uh, as a lot of people see it, between the U.S., and, and China and others. A neural network is a, is a system, a mathematical system that can learn its skills by analyzing data. So the example I always give is if you have thousands of cat photos, you can feed those into a neural network. It can analyze those photos and look for the patterns that define what a cat looks like. And in doing that, it can learn to recognize a cat. And that is incredibly powerful because the way we built technology in the past was not like that. We had to get a bunch of engineers into a room and they had to line of code by line of code define what a cat looks like. That is never going to happen, right? Even a cat photo is too complex for engineers to just define all the possibilities of what a, what a cat might look like. We have different breeds yeah. and pictures are gonna be different from different angles and you're gonna have flaws in the pictures, but now you have these systems that can learn to do that. And it's not just cat photos. This is how Siri works. Mm -hmm. When you speak commands into Siri, it can understand the spoken words that are coming out of your mouth because of a neural network. And it learns in the same way. It analyzes hours and hours and hours of spoken words and it learns to recognize them. And that means the technology can improve at a pace it never could in the past. So, and we're seeing that with so many technologies. We mentioned speech recognition, image recognition. It's the way translation services work now. In the past, those engineers tried to find how to translate between English into French, how machines could do that. Um, they made only so much progress. Suddenly, you can feed translations between English and French into a neural network, and it learns to do it's it. It's crazy. The image recognition we talked about, that's what's driving self-driving cars, um, other types of robotics, their ability to deal with new situations is getting better. And it's not just getting better. It's getting better at a faster rate than in, a in the past. So this is a key moment. And this is a global race towards that technology. What you see in my book 
is from you know the moment that this started to work. My book opens with this auction uh, in in Lake Tahoe when uh, one of the key people who nurtured this technology over the decades realizes it's working. He knows these big companies are going to be interested. He decides to auction his services off to the highest bidder. Google is there. Microsoft is there. But Baidu, a Chinese company, Baidu is often called the Google of China. It's one of the biggest internet companies in the world, is there as well, bidding for the services of, of this researcher, Jeff Hinton, and his two students. China is there from the beginning. They understand what is going on um, and have been a player since then. And the reason um, people are concerned about China being in this race as well is that this is about the data. Mm -hmm. A large population, like the Chinese population, is going to produce more data. They're going to produce more researchers in this area, which is another key currency. Um, uh, But it's really about about the data and the ability uh, to pull it together and use it that may give China an advantage here. And it's why a lot of people in the U.S., for instance, are concerned. Interesting. And just a question to you, would you, 30 years from now, would you rather live in a world where China had won that race or U.S. had won that race? Or does it even matter because well, it's technology and it's agnostic, though – we're not quite sure it is. I think that you think have to think about more in terms of how we as a global society deal with this. Mm-hmm. And that, that involves looking at how it's progressing in different countries and, and, and how, how to respond to that. Um, meaning we're pushed. These, these ideas are pushing towards a lot of things that could be dangerous uh, to all of us. Autonomous weapons, right? If you talk about, um, this technology helping self-driving cars see the world around them. They can help a self-flying drone see the world around it and potentially use a weapon, right? Identify a target. That's one thing we're heading towards. This is also about surveillance. That technology that can recognize a cat can recognize a face. And that's what it does today on Facebook with your photos that you upload. But it can also be used for surveillance purposes. Uh, in China, uh, as we speak, this is used to identify an ethnic minority, which is concerning for a lot of people. Um, in the U.S., it's used by police departments. Um, and what we need to do is think about um, globally, like how we're dealing with these technologies, whether or not we want to use them um, and how we use them. You could ban autonomous weapons in the U.S., but they're still going to happen in other parts of the world. So you kind of have to think about this collectively because the technology is progressing for various reasons in various countries, including the U.S. and China. Yeah. I wonder if there's almost two categories of of thinking about the use, the use cases per se. It's, it's in the evolutionary um, framework, which we're under now, and in the revolutionary. And so – evolutionary yes we should we need to decide how do we use these technologies because they're very powerful tools but ultimately we're the one holding the hammer in the revolutionary framework the it's completely different questions it's not about using it's will what does it decide we have value for are are we valuable are we worth having around are is it 
Is it worthwhile to put a distinction between those two camps and say that the way we should approach AI now is actually completely different to how we could be approaching this technology if it is superior intelligence at some point in the future? Well, I think it's worth making a distinction between those two things, right? Today, what we have are systems that work in very particular ways, whether it's recognizing sounds, images, we're now getting systems that can carry on a conversation, chat bots, they're getting better and better and better because of all these ideas I've talked about. At the same time, we have um, people who are working towards that larger goal that you talked about, right? A system that can do anything the human brain can do. They call it AGI, artificial general intelligence. And there are two big labs uh, in the world that are pushing in that direction. One is in London, they're owned by Google. Another is called OpenAI. They're based in San Francisco and they're, uh, they're a close partner of Microsoft. And they, they, both these I say that's their stated mission, but they don't necessarily know how to get there. That's not something um, that is in the near term. It's not something that where we can see how we can build such a thing. It's such an ambitious project. Some people don't think it'll happen for a long, long time. Um, and you know, that said, there are people who are already concerned about it. They they're already concerned about the possibility of that sort of technology turning against humanity. Elon Musk, most famously, uh, has talked about this for years. Um, that is that is in the distant future, but there there's something to be said for being skeptical of even the simpler technologies. We've seen how these things can go wrong. Um, it, it just in in recent years, um, anyone who's lived past the, the past four years can see some of these, and we we can talk about that. But it's worth being concerned, even with simpler technology today, where this is going and thinking about it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess a fully not perfect parallel would be saying with fission technology of let's say in, in the year 1900 we don't know how to split the atom yet and we don't know how to get there necessarily but it would seem prudent to begin those discussions because ultimately the vast majority of progression happened in the last six years up up until 1945 so like 39 to 45 and it was under the cloud of a global war. So arguably, it's very difficult to have ethical discussions when there's much more um, prescient um, things going on in the world at the time, like, um, like a war. I'm not at all saying we're going to be in that situation with AI, but it's just like, it makes sense to have these discussions in tandem with the technology as it develops. And, you know... A thing that I noticed was very interesting in the book and, and reading about, so you mentioned Jeff Hinton, he's this fascinating character, the, the man who can't sit down. <laughs> right. And he, he sounds like a complete comic as well, paired with his clearly genius. He's incredibly funny. <laughs> incredibly funny. And I hope that comes across in the book because he amuses me to no end. Um, on a daily basis, almost. Yeah, no, I, I wish I could have some conversations with him. I'm sure those were pretty hilarious. And so he, your book starts and he's in this bidding war with, uh, please correct me, it's Baidu, Microsoft, and Google? 
Right. And one other player, this lab, DeepMind in London, oh, right. um, which I mentioned, which is eventually acquired by Google, but had not been at that point. They were unknown to the world at the time, but they were bidding as well uh, alongside these three Internet giants. Yeah. And so Hinton and his two students, they have they figured out neural networks in a way. And so they're bidding the technology and their work off to the highest bidder. And the thing that I found fascinating is in the heat of the auction, they begin looking at calm trails and, and trying to decide if th they should do this or should do that. So I, I realized in the heat of the moment, they, they became quite superstitious and are trying to piece together these things of should and should not, which so suddenly these technologists are bringing in the ethical and the moral. And, and, and I say that because if it's an auction, it's ultimately about the highest price. There is no what we should do. It's the highest price wins. But then it becomes this, I don't know, should we do this? Should we do that? And it very quickly becomes muddied and murky and they're not sure. Do we auction? Do we go with our conscience? What does that even mean? What are calm trails? All these things. And they eventually bow out of the auction. And so my, my observation and question is, and nothing against Jeff Hinton at all, but contrasting it, we have these technologists and these futurists and these researchers who are incredibly good at what they do. Um, Ms. Mr. Hinton or Dr. Hinton had this laser-focused vision on neural networks decades before they worked. He knew where they were going. But then in the heat of the moment, he becomes this wishy-washy person mixing in morals and ethics. So are these the kind of people we really want in those positions and talking about the ethical and the moral? Or is it better to have a more well-rounded community of, say, perhaps philosophers and folks that spend a lot of time in that world? Should we even be listening to AI researchers when they talk about the moral and the ethical? Well, I would argue he's not being wishy-washy. He's being human there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what he's, there are some people who would simply go for the money, yes. right? And run an auction, try to get the most money out of it. But what? What what Hinton is dealing with there and his students is that they are they are more interested in in other things. Hmm. Um, certainly, the auction was set up to maximize a price, but also they have these are idealistic people who have firm beliefs about how they want their technology used um, and who they want to use it. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so interesting is that in the end, even as the price continues to go up. Hinton decides that he's going to stop the auction, um, and he's going to and he's going to sell himself to Google um, because because he felt like it was the right thing to do. He is an idealist, um, and we can talk about other ways that he's an idealist. You know, he we talk about autonomous weapons. You know, he left the United States in the eighties and went to Canada because he did not want to take money from the U.S. military, hmm. um, and and then he moves to Canada. Um, 20 years pass and he moves into Google and shortly thereafter, Google starts using this technology with the military, right? And his ideals kind of clashed with, with the company. Um, and you, you saw this play out. Um, you know, I, I think that Hinton um, is someone who thinks long and hard about this stuff and has for decades. Other people don't think as hard about it. And, you know, I, and I understand the point you're, 
you're making there. There are some people who are merely interested in pushing the technology forward without thinking about the consequences or without thinking about them seriously. Um, I don't think that necessarily, um, you know, applies to Jeff. You know, he has his own, um, you know, quirks and, and flaws. Don't but I think all. in that moment, he is, yeah, he, I mean, he's, you know, he's thinking hard about what is the right thing to do um, for him and his technology um, and, and not thinking about maximizing the money. Um, we have run into problems as a society when, you know, some of these uh, technologies get into public companies and, and they are designed, uh, uh, of course, to in some ways maximize uh, the money. You know, they're driven by the profit motive. Um, individuals are driven driven by profit too, of course. And and sometimes you get in, into problems there. And I think that part of the lesson of the book is that we, as a society, need to step back from that sometimes. And we need to think about what we're doing, whether we're in, inside these companies or out. Mm -hmm. You do so much reporting on Silicon Valley and, and especially AI and all this technology. Do you see a portion or a vast majority or any kind of segment of um, the AI community that view AI as somewhat of a savior technology, they'll save humanity? Um, you know, some people um, certainly certainly do, um, and they believe um, or, or state, you know, that that is, that is, that is the aim. They can sort of solve our ills. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there might be cases, um, where this technology can be helpful. Um, but you know, there, there are drawbacks as well. And we need to think about those too. And I guess I wonder, is that typify a large segment or is it somewhat small and most have a more realistic expectation that no, this thing could go quite poorly or it's just a tool and it, it will be great once it's here. It's a wide spectrum, and I think that's one of the things that's, that's interesting. We tend to think about um, AI researchers as this monolithic thing sometimes. They, they all agree, and they all see things the same way. There's really a wide spectrum there. There are different tribes, as they, they are sometimes called, within the community of, of, of researchers within Silicon Valley who really see these things mm. in very, very different ways. You know, some people are completely bought into that AGI idea. Um, and they really believe it. My, my, the chapter in my book about that AGI idea is, is called religion, right? It is about this belief that that's going to happen and that it's, it's going to be a positive thing, but we need to think about, you know, where it can go wrong as, as well. Other people don't have that belief and they're really dismissive of that notion that that could happen in the near term. And you kind of see this this clash. Some people really want to get the technology out, um, despite the flaws that we're seeing. Um, uh, they they have a, a belief that Silicon Valley needs to operate in that way, and you need to, you know, uh, the the quote that you so often hear um, from the lips of of Mark Zuckerberg is "Move fast and break things," right? Yeah. <laughs> Which was kind of their mantra in the past, and that's. You know, loosely, then the the stance of a lot of people in Silicon Valley that Silicon Valley needs the opportunity to explore ideas, um, even if they're dangerous, um, and get these things out into the world, see if they work, and iterate. Um, other people um, don't think we should operate that way, um, and you do see 
uh, increasingly a push and pull between those notions. Well, I find that fascinating of tribalism. And I've certainly noticed in my life, which is so oddly hilarious. And, uh, you know, I'm guilty too. The more similar you get to certain people, the more tribal you end up getting sometimes. It's the weirdest thing. And and you, you put that quite well, actually. People think AI, the AI community is actually quite monolithic. Well, it's quite tribal. Because from my perspective, AI researchers, they're all, they're, they're very into very similar things. Computer science, artificial intelligence, neural networks, all this stuff. But for them, it's a vast universe of all these different nuanced ways. And so maybe if you could walk me into that a little bit, what are the main tribes? What are the main camps? Well, what you see in the book is, is a reflection of what we were talking about earlier, meaning in the 70s, the, the primary belief was that you did need those engineers in the room to code all this into the system. Um, and that tribe became um, known as the, um, well, they, they, they called it symbolic AI. Hmm. Okay. And that was one tribe is that you, you had to sort of code things and have the system operate on these symbols, you know, numbers and letters that would explicitly tell the machine what to do. And this kind of reached its peak in the 80s. There was this project called Psych, C-Y-C. Hmm. And it was literally an effort to code common sense into a computer. Interesting. So these engineers would spend, they spent years and they, they, they're still doing it, where they're basically really? putting the rules of common sense you know, into a database, basically, that the machine can then use. And that is what they saw as the path to common sense, this symbolic AI. Well, this is this is now, AI creating jobs, not taking away jobs. <laughs> this is true. And this is true. AI continues to do that in other ways yeah. um, as well. And we can discuss that. And then what you had is people like Hinton, who became known as the connectionists. Hmm. And they believe in this this alternate method where you would you would have this system um, and they and that would analyze the data and learn the skills, right? Um, they call them connectionists because they believed in these mathematical systems that were that were vaguely in the image of the human brain. They call it a neural network mm. because it's meant to mimic the web of neurons in the brain. This interconnected network um, of items that work in tandem. Um, to to learn this task, um, that's what they really believed in, and that's that's where the the neural network um, was developed and um, over the years is in these connectionists. Now there are other people who believe in other things. Um, the Bayesians believed in the, believe in this other type of of math and probability, um, and there are there are still others. But you do have these camps. Um, they were more defined in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, some some of this bleeding together because neural networks really started to work um, in so many ways uh, a decade ago. And so they're kind of bleeding together. But it is by no means a monolithic uh, community. Interesting. So bring it to China just a little bit. Could there be a Chinese version of your book? Not, not translated, but the exact same carbon copy following... Chinese folks who in this world of AI have been from the beginning and all the way up to present day? Or is it so much cross-pollination that 
because I know your book captured a number of Chinese experts as well. Yeah, there's it's a it's a global story, and I you know my my book is being translated into, into Chinese. Um, because it is completely relevant there, and you're right. A lot of the characters um, are Chinese, and 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 are fascinating in their own right. And one of one of the lessons of the book is that because the people who believed in this idea were academics, and they believed in openly publishing even their latest ideas, as academics do. Mm-hmm. As they were sucked into industry, industry started to do the same thing. It was, you know, it was one of the things that these academics wanted to continue to do. And it changed the way, for instance, that Google operates. And even with the latest advances in this area, Google will openly publish. And what that means even is... still today? Even still today. And what that wow. means is the latest ideas are available to everyone. So they're available in China. They're available in the UK. They're available here. Hmm. The latest papers are out there. The currency, like I said, is the data. You need data to make the make the ideas work. Um, you need processing power, and that's computer processing power. That is something that's held by these giant internet companies. Uh, we have companies like that in China as well as in the U.S. And you need the talent. You need people like Jeff Hinton and others. And and China's producing that talent. So the dynamics of this arm race are different than people might expect. It's not like the technology was developed in the U.S. by this small group and they're keeping it secret so that rivals can't have it. It's this technology that's that's being developed in the open in many ways. Um, And your advantage is, is in a different place. Well, framing it like that, it's hard not to see how China would have a very strong competitive advantage. Well, that's one one of the things that some people are concerned about, um, you know, including, say, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, uh, who recently uh, led an effort to uh, lay out this arms race, as a lot of people call it, Hmm. Um, this uh, commission, um, which he uh, uh, oversaw along with others, has recently given a report to Congress and the president laying out how they think the U.S. needs to respond um, to the situation and kind of change the way it does things. One of the issues is that so much of the talent today is inside these very large companies uh, that we've been talking about, Google and Microsoft and Facebook and others. That's where the, the computing power is. It's where the data is. It's where the people are. It's where the advances um, are continuing to move forward. It's those, all those things are not in government. They're not in the government research labs. (laughs) They're not necessarily in academia. You don't have this close collaboration between government and industry the way you do in China. And so what Schmidt and his colleagues are trying to do is, is trying to correct that imbalance and have more of the work happen um, in government labs and academia. Mm -hmm. So we can be sure to educate the, the next generation, but also make sure the government and the military has access to this stuff. Uh, that's one of their concerns. Sounds a, I mean, broad strokes here. Sounds like a bit like an uphill battle. It, there's a lot of words to describe Silicon Valley. And as an outsider, I'm not even going to pretend to be an expert in no Silicon Valley, but libertarian is one of those words that comes to mind when I think of Silicon Valley. And so I have a hard time imagining folks just wanting to flood to the halls of government 
especially these types of technologists to work on AI within, and especially in the growing context of this anti-establishment, pop, more populist flavors we have going on as well. Do you think? Do you think that could be a, a roadblock for this type of framework that? He was laying out of wanting more partnership between the government and Silicon Valley. Well, yes and no. Again, Silicon Valley, much like the AI community, is not monolithic, and we we've seen this play out in various ways. And think about it like this: Jeff Hinton, like I said, moves into Google, and after a while, Google does start working with the military on, on something called Project Maven. It was an effort to identify objects, so buildings, vehicles, people in drone footage. Now that's a path towards the type of you know autonomous weapons that we talked about. Google started to work on that with the Department of Defense. A lot of people at Google got very upset. There was a protest inside the company. Google actually ended up pulling out of the contract, hmm. essentially not renewing the contract. So there are people who are really concerned about their companies in Silicon Valley working with the DOD in that way. Other people see it completely differently. And they, and you know, inside these companies and out, they think that the Googles of the world should be working with the government. Um, you have people in Silicon Valley who are intent on working for the, for the government. And we, we have a new breed of startup that's building these self-flying drones and they're willing to put weapons on them. Um, and, you know, sometimes they run into problems with that other group um, who's, who's opposed to it. Um, some of these companies have actually set up shop in Southern California, not in Silicon Valley, because the environment is more friendly hmm. uh, to the type of thing um, that they're doing. Um, so, again, it's, you know, you get these tribes, right? Um, people forget amidst the concerns over that um you know, that have been raised in Silicon Valley, that Silicon Valley was built on Department of Defense money, right? The, the internet was built on DOD uh, funds. Uh, HP um, worked closely with the government and um, so many other companies have over the years. So it's it's more complicated than people might think. Would you say it's that willingness to work with the government? Is that coming from patriotism or is that just strictly financial incentive of, well, there's dollars for these contracts, let's do it? Or is it a mix of lots of things? It's a, it's a mix of lots of things. Um, you know, some people see the, the government market as an opportunity and, uh, you know, that's why they're creating companies, but they also see, some of them see a real need um, to ensure that the U.S. military is up to speed on mm. this stuff. Um, and they see the military is behind uh, when it comes to this, and, and they're determined to, to get it up to speed. You, you mentioned, it wasn't the word framework, but the, the thing that uh, Eric Schmidt brought to Congress, c can you explain that a little bit? Of What, what are some of his thoughts? What, what type of perspective is he seeing in all this? Well, he, he's concerned about it generally, the government not having access to the talent and the technology. So there are various ways of dealing with that. You can increase funding to government labs and in particular technologies um, that are coming to the fore. You can also increase funding to universities in some ways to 
to make sure that we have the talent in the universities to educate the next generation. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting things that report proposed was basically a West Point for digital services. So like a national academy where people would learn these types of things. Um, that That's part of that, that recommendation. And that's a fascinating idea, right? That you would have this West Point for AI researchers, basically. Uh, but they're serious about that, and um, and we'll see how that plays out. But that's 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 part of the proposal at this point, at least. Did you feel there was some traction on that, or is it kind of just this? Oh, yeah, one of many ideas. See if that happens. We'll see. We're still waiting to see how this is adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, it was merely, merely presented to Congress and, and the president. Um, we'll, we'll see how it plays w- out. Was that Biden or Trump? Biden. So oh, this this happened. Fairly recently, exactly. Interesting. And are you noticing any shifts between the Trump and Biden administration on interest in funding in AI technology? A little bit. It's still too too early okay. to tell uh, when it comes to this. Um, we'll see how uh, the government reacts to this report, for instance. But um, we'll see some movement here at some point. Um, the EU just... Um, uh, propose certain rules for governing AI, uh, which are interesting. Um, it's more about sort of restricting the powers of AI, but you do have governments across the globe starting to think about this stuff and, and act on it. And uh, we'll see what happens with the current administration. Touching on Europe there, are they a player at all in this or is it fairly Silicon Valley in China? No, they are a player. What was what was interesting, and this is reflected again in the book, is that so much of the talent in this area was not in the U.S. It was in Canada, where Jeff Hinton was. There was a center of gravity there. It was in 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 Europe, um, France, um, and the U.K. were centers for this. Uh, Deep Mind, the lab we keep talking about, is an incredibly important lab. They started to buy up researchers essentially from across the world, and so um, the talent is certainly there. Um, you know, we don't, Europe doesn't have a, a tech giant the way other parts of the world do for various reasons. You know, DeepMind, which is so important, this lab in London were acquired by Google. Um, you know, so they end up, you know, under a, an American company. They're part of the same umbrella company that now owns Google Alphabet. So the, the talent is certainly in Europe and, and, there are very, very important universities when it comes to this stuff. They just don't have a tech giant. Um, and that has an effect. Um, but Europe is is hardly on the sidelines. Hmm. So, so they're producing talent, but it ends up in very predictable places of wherever that data and money is. In a way, like I was, uh, I was recently uh, um, in Cambridge uh, in the UK. And I hadn't been there for years, and you know, I was I was researching uh, a story for the Times. I was I was researching my book. I got off the the train in Cambridge, and I walked towards the university. You know, within five minutes, I had passed Amazon. Then I went by this this large building that was going up. It turns out that was a new lab for Samsung. You keep going down the street. On your right is Microsoft. Um, you keep going a bit more and you reach um, the the Cambridge UK lab of Apple, uh, which had acquired a company there. And that's why they were there. So all these wow. global tech giants were there in Cambridge, right? You could see it physically. 
Uh, and it was a great, you know, kind of metaphor for, for the reality here, right? Is that the, the talent um, is valuable and these giants had recognized it. And so they are there. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly the case. So a- Amazon, they certainly have no lack of data or funds. Where are they in, in all of this? And I know, I know they weren't as, as involved in your book as say Google or some of the other tech giants. And I guess t- two part question one, where are they? in this a perhaps race or just AI world. And then secondly, um, are they playing by the same rules of if, if they, uh, have new findings, are they publishing it as readily as say Google or some of the others? That's a good point. They, they are certainly a big player here. They just reacted to it a little differently. Hmm. Google and Facebook were intent on snapping up, you know, the big names in the field, paying millions of dollars for people like Hinton and others. Um, Amazon tends to operate a little differently. Uh, they they paid some money, but there's kind of more behind the scenes. They're less interested in in the sort of the PR that comes with the big name mm. um, hires. Um, but certainly they're they're a player here, right? This technology is really helping to drive things like Alexa, right? That's a really prime example of where the technology is progressing. That's an Amazon technology. They have, they've acquired a self-driving car company, um, which is another important field uh, here. And a lot of the technologies we've been talking about can play into various uh, Amazon services. So they're, they're certainly a player. They just go about it in a, in a different way. And, you're right. They don't publish in the same way some of these other companies do. That's you know that's how Amazon, but also Apple are different. Um, mm. They don't publish uh, their latest research in the same way a lot of these other companies do. Meaning Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and others. Interesting. I guess when you overlay game theory on top of that that is an advantage to not publish because you're receiving all this free information and these new findings, but you're not providing more to others. So you, you gain, but you're not giving up. So I guess what, why do others continue to publish if it's potentially against their financial? Yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive in some ways. They, they're allowing people to publish because the best researchers are attracted by that. Okay. So the way it's seen is, it's if you don't publish, you're not going to get the best talent, and uh, that's something that clearly Apple, for instance, has really struggled with. Um, and you know, they made some noise uh, uh, here and there about changing that, trying to attract the talent. They've attracted some. Uh, and hired some very high high profile researchers re- recently but that's why it's you know it's in that field you want to be able to publish and if you're going to be restricted you might think twice about going to that company okay so either you publish you attract the best talent or perhaps you have a hard time attracting you might need to fork over even more dollars right Okay, interesting. So short term, you perhaps financially incentivize to publish, but long term, you might be financially incentivized to not publish. It's that's, 
more of a gamble at that point. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see how this plays out in yeah, the long term. Um, it's very interesting. A lot of people think that as AI becomes more dangerous, so to speak, as you know, as we see things like bias and um, uh, and as it starts to affect the world in larger ways, that these companies might need to restrict what they put out. Um, we'll see if if the companies behave in that way. Um, but there's some there's a lot of talk about that that the that the norms may change. But the way it works right now is everything gets published. Interesting. Well, so. Yeah, let's bring it to bias and ethics. Just oh, we know we we're talking about ethics earlier, but it's a deep world. Can always go back to that. And so if if AI is currently, let's ignore the symbolic AI, but neural networks, those that are trained. So if AI is trained on data sets, vast data sets, it's not us that are teaching. It's the data that's teaching. And so why and how do we think we'll be able to teach these machines ethics? if we're not teaching them the knowledge they're already gaining? Yeah, that's, it's, it's the big question, right? You, <laughs> you can't really teach a machine ethics, right? The way it works today and um, is sort of the flip. The flip side of that is that the, the machines in some ways are learning things that we don't want them to learn, right? Learning bias against women and people of color, for instance, um, they're learning from our mistakes. They're learning from our, our flaws. Um, you know, people talk about often, you know, can you code ethics into a machine? That, you know, that's that's a hard thing to even even think about how you would do that. Um, what we're trying to do at this point is you know, deal with these ethical flaws um, that uh, that are baked into the systems. Well, the the thing that I also find interesting in that is and it goes a bit deeper is if from a secular perspective, and I'd imagine a portion of Silicon Valley would identify as having a secular worldview, we are time plus matter plus chance. And so there is no value. Humans do not have value in that equation. And so I find it quite fascinating that we talk about the moral, we talk about the ethics, but without perhaps talking about where does that come from? Do you find that folks think about that contradiction or are they very open? Like, you know what? My personal worldview ends at the place time plus matter plus chance. Humans have no intrinsic value. So therefore, the ethics that I talk about are simply subjective in the way that I view the world. And we want to treat people equally, even though there's no reason for that, a rationale for that. Huh. So uh, tell me a bit more about what you're saying there. So I, <clears throat> what is that attitude? I'm saying under a secular worldview, so there, it's atheistic. There's nothing out there except for time plus matter plus chance equals it's right. ev evolutionary biology. We, we end up here because of chance. And so there's no, eth there's no moral, there's no objective I see moral. what you're saying. So there's an absence of that even in, in our world today. Um, why should we, you know, try to deal with that in our machines is what you're saying. Yes. With um, it, perhaps I you see. can recognize and say, well, I, I find no evidence here, but I want to believe people have value. I want to believe we're made equal. And so I realize AI is very powerful. And so I want to make AI treat people equally. 
Do do you find there's a discussion yeah, there? Mean, well, there, there's definitely a discussion. Um, you know, some people see um, do see technology and kind of rational thought as as, as separate from emotion and separate from history and they do tend to view it um uh and separate from you know ethics in a way right they tend to view the technology as in a bubble um almost and um you know I, and but a lot of people push back against that and they and they realize that technology does not exist in a bubble and that there are all these things you know whether or not some people argue that 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 ethics, you know, do not play a role. Other people realize they, they do and that, uh, and that history plays a role and that emotion plays a, a role. So again, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing these tribes, right. Um, in some ways clashing and some people see it one way and some people see it another. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder, there's so much talk of, we should do this with AI. We, we, we should give it ethics, morals, all these things. But ultimately, if we create true AGI and the superior intelligence, perhaps it really just ends up that the question is, will it come to its own conclusions based on the knowledge of humanity that we have value and we're worth keeping around? Or is that totally out to lunch? Well, I mean, at this point, you know, it that all that's hypothetical. Of course, right? um, we <laughs> just we don't have we don't have systems that are anywhere close uh, to doing that, and so they're they're fun thought experiments. But it's very different than the technology that we have today. We have control over it, right? We we can pull the plug uh, when when we want, um, and we can rebuild when we want, and we can decide when and where it's deployed. Um, you know, it's not this situation where the machine is in the driver's seat. And it's it's difficult at this point to understand how that uh, that ends up ends up happening. Now, that said, what we do have are s machines that we have control over that we put out into the world and they do things that we didn't expect and they have unintended consequences. And you see that with social social media services and so many other technologies that you know, we have control over but once we get them out into the world in a way they're behaving on their own right you know once they're out in, into the world mm -hmm. they're they're operating in ways we, that we didn't really expect and you know we could in theory pull the plug on facebook if we wanted to but that's not going to happen right there are all these uh, forces that are going to keep that going economic um, among others um so there, there are kind of analogous things that are happening, but a machine that that makes its own decisions and turns against humanity—that's that's still very much a, you know, a hypothetical. So I guess fo following that a little bit, because I, I don't want to go too far into this crazy hypothetical world. Because I, I agree, it's un it's unknowable. It's worth thinking about, but it's completely unknowable at this point. Um, if you if you could live in a hundred years from now, everything you know about AI, could you live a hundred years from now, but with no chance of returning? Would, would you go? Um, you can take your family right. and loved ones. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, I, I, 
probably not. I think I would, <laughs> I, I would, I would stay. Um, but it, these are certainly interesting things to think about. You know, there's a reason that I cover this stuff. It's a, um, these are fascinating ideas and it's, and, and it's so interesting to think about what is happening now and where, where it might go. Um, but there, there are just so many concerns um, now uh, when the technology is simple. Like, as it becomes more complex and more pervasive, um, the worry is that those, those problems will get bigger. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, th that's, those are scary prospects. Are you, are you working on a second book? Or are you taking a, a little relaxation here and just on the regular beat? Just on the regular beat for the moment, and busy, uh, busy promoting this one, uh, which is fun. I definitely want to write another one, and I've got a few ideas, but uh, um, none, none, uh, none have been chosen yet. Yeah, well, I, I suppose those are probably you're not publishing those ideas, <laughs> like right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'll keep those to myself for the moment. Yeah, that sounds good. Well. Um, Cade, where can folks find you if they want to find, first off, where can they find your book? And second off, if they want to read more of your work or if you're on social media. Books everywhere, Amazon, independent bookstores, Target, Walmart. There's there's a, a hardback. There's a digital version uh, for Kindle and other readers. Uh, there's an audio version, which I, which I quite like. You can follow me at the New York Times. Um, where I publish regularly and am, am, am on staff and on Twitter at, at Cade Metz. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. I've certainly learned about a lot about AI during this discussion, but also your book. I, I highly recommend it. I think I, I put that thing back in about four nights. Um, it was, wow. it was a super good read. It's not, I just want to make sure folks know it's not overly technical. It's about people and their stories and their journey throughout all this. And through the process, you learn so much about where this world of AI has started and where it is today. Good to hear you say that. That's <laughs> exactly what I was going for. Oh, wonderful. Great. Well, you have a good day, Kate. Thanks so much for joining us. You too. Thank you. Thanks for watching to the very end. We really appreciate it. If you want to see more content, like, subscribe, tag the notification bell, rate and review if we're on podcasts, and also let us know in the comments below who you'd like us to interview next. We read all of them, and we'd love to hear some feedback. So see you next week.